0: Well, good morning. Thank you, Missy. Great job. If you would, take your Bibles. Turn to Luke chapter number 9. And we're going to begin in just a moment with verse number 1. So I had something puzzling happen to me just a few minutes ago. My wife brought me my watch. What do you think that means? (laughs) Heard a story about two little boys that were friends. One was a little Catholic boy, one was a little Baptist boy. A little Catholic boy said, if you'll come to church with me, I'll go to church with you. And so the next Sunday, the little Baptist boy went with the little Catholic boy to the church. And throughout the service, the little Catholic boy is explaining what they're doing and what it means. The next Sunday, they, they go to the Baptist church with the little Baptist boy. And the little Catholic boy is watching what's going on. And at one point, the pastor takes his, his watch off and lays it on the pulpit. The little boy asks his little Baptist friend, what does that mean? He says, it doesn't mean anything. So just keep that in mind. <clears throat> Luke chapter number 9, verse number 1. This morning I want to look at this chapter in the light of what it reveals to us about what it takes to be a true follower of Jesus Christ. We're not called to some kind of superficial Christianity that does not affect the way that we live our lives. We're called to be Christ's disciples. We're called to a life of discipleship, and the New Testament is full of instructions About discipleship. Here in Luke chapter number nine, we find Jesus beginning to teach his disciples what it means to be a disciple of his. But did they understand what it meant to follow him? The call to follow Jesus is a call to discipleship, but what does that mean? As Jesus challenges Peter and the rest of the disciples in this passage, he unfolds a radical teaching of what it means to be a real follower of his. First of all, note with me, he empowered and sent them out. It says in verse number one, then he called his 12 disciples together and gave them power and authority over all the demons and to cure diseases. Now, Jesus has demonstrated his power and authority through a series of miracles that we've seen in Luke chapter 8. By the stilling of the storm, he demonstrates his power over nature. By his healing of the demoniac, he demonstrates his authority over the spiritual realm. And by the healing of the woman with the issue of blood, he shows his power over sickness. And finally, by the raising of Jairus's daughter, he demonstrated he had power even over death itself. Now Jesus begins a whole new dimension by demonstrating that he not only has that power, but he has the power to transfer his power and authority to those he has called and sent out. Later in the Great Commission, Jesus says in Matthew chapter 28, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Jesus not only called the disciples, but when he sent them out, he gave them every resource to carry out the task that they had been assigned. The text says that they were given power And authority, power, dunamis, the ability to accomplish a task. And authority, exousia, is the right to do it. Authority is like a traffic cop who by simply raising his can can bring two tons of a speeding automobile to a complete halt. Does the officer have the power to stop the car? No. But he has the authority of the uniform and so it does. But how were the disciples to convince the people that they truly represented the Messiah in his coming kingdom? They were given the power to cast out demons and the power to heal all diseases. But we need to remember that gift of healing was not the primary responsibility of their ministry. Proclaiming the good news was the primary responsibility. We should always be interested in meeting the needs of the people that we're trying to reach with the gospel. That's why we involve ourselves in manna and other feeding operations. But we mustn't make the mistake of making social work the mission of the church. It is incidental to the mission of the church, but preaching of the gospel is its mission. Unfortunately, today in the modern church, many have exchanged the message for social work and the social gospel and in so doing they're not really doing a very good job of either. The apostles ability to heal was a special gift that authenticated their message. Today we have the Word of God to test a person's ministry. The empowerment of the apostles was unique. They were given the power and authority to do miracles. But since the close of the New Testament age, God's people are, are no longer need miracles to prove that our message is from God because we have the New Testament to prove if what we are saying is true. He empowered them, and then he sent them out in verse number 2. He sent them to preach the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. As we read those words, we're tempted to think that this is a commission given only to Jesus' original disciples. Yet there are eternal principles here that we can discover that will encourage and empower us to carry out the Great Commission. Instruction about ministry is especially important today because in our day there are many misconceptions about the ministry. The greatest misconception about the ministry is that it is for the full-time staff of the church only. When we use the word minister, we usually mean the professional minister, the preacher or an evangelist. And while it is true that God has called some to ministry as a profession, he has called all of us to be ministers. While God provided many different ways for us to make a living, our vocation, he has called all of us to minister for God, to be at work, at home as well in the church. Ministry means looking for opportunities To make an impact in the lives of others with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Ministry means to care for others, share with others, and seek to touch the lives of others with the transforming power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. How are we to carry out that ministry? Well, Mark says it this way He called them unto unto Him and He sent them forth. All were sent, there were no exceptions. The whole idea of sharing your faith may make you uneasy. Perhaps you're not too sure about this evangelism thing. Our society would convince us that a person's religious is supposed to remain a private matter. And because we're not sure we know enough ourselves to attempt to share with anyone we don't know, we don't. They might think that we are foolish or even worse, that were a fanatic. These disciples were not that much different. They were always seen to be two steps behind on understanding the parables and three steps behind on understanding the miracles. Yet despite their imperfect understanding, Jesus sent them out, trusting that they would go and share the good news. So he not only empowered and sent them out Secondly, he instructed them to travel light and depend on God. Verse 3 says, and he said to them, take nothing for your journey, neither staves, nor bag, nor bread, nor money. And do not have two tunics apiece, whatever house you enter, stay there, and from there depart. When you compare the parallel accounts between Matthew and Mark and Luke, you'll discover that in Matthew, Jesus prohibits taking sandals. Whereas in Mark, he allows sandals. But in Matthew and Luke, Jesus prohibits taking a staff. Whereas in Mark, he he permits taking a staff. How do we resolve all of that? Well, perhaps the best answer is that Jesus was saying that the disciples should not take an extra pair of sandals or an extra staff. It would have been unlikely for anyone to travel barefooted over the rocky terrain of Israel. And it would would be assumed that you always took a single staff. Why would you need two on a journey? So each account agrees that Jesus was making this point. Just go as you are. Don't stop to load up with extra provisions. The problem with this view is why anyone would need two staffs. And the, the answer to that, of course, is that Jesus was speaking in exaggerated form to make a point. And the point was simple travel light and depend on God they were sent out to preach and to heal in the villages of Galilee and he specifically forbade them to carry along the kinds of things that we always try to take when we make a trip don't you when we make a trip we take everything from our favorite pillow to our extra fan in case they don't have a fan don't you doesn't everybody do that well that's exactly what he's talking about here they're not allowed to take extra provisions, and the emphasis is on urgency and simplicity. The overlying reason was that they would be dependent upon Christ for their strength. The minimum of provisions was meant to call for the maximum of faith. What was Jesus trying to do? by sending out the disciples without even the essentials that they need. I believe the answer is that Jesus was training the 12 to trust him for their every need, especially their daily needs. This was a lesson in practical theology, the theology of trusting him to empower their ministry and to meet their needs. Incidentally, this trust was vindicated according to Luke chapter 22 and verse 35 where it says, And they lacked nothing. This is the same essential issue that God's people have to learn in every age. It's not how much you know that matters, it's who you trust. Secondly, in verse 4, he says, don't shop around for the nicest housing. Whatever house you enter, stay there and from there depart. When the disciples entered into a town and they were offered hospitality in a place, they were to remain there the whole time. They were to accept what was provided for them as a gift from God and not move if they found someone who could offer them nicer accommodations. Travel light, depend on God. Number three, don't stress out over those who reject the gospel. Verse number five, and whoever will not receive you, when you go out of that city, shake off the very dust from your feet as a testimony against them. Don't misunderstand this as an act of vindictiveness or anger or resentment. This act was designed to make people think deeply about their spiritual condition. We can surmise that this act made a strong impression and it brought some of them to repentance. For to reject the message was to reject he who sent the message. And secondly, it was a reminder to the disciples to put rejection behind themselves and not allow past discouragement from pursuing present opportunities. Parenthetically, while the disciples are on their mission in verses 7 through 9, we have Herod's confusion and the problem of a guilty conscience. Now Herod the Tetrarch heard of all that was done by him, that is Jesus, Jesus. And he was perplexed, because it was said by some that John had risen from the dead, and by some that Elijah had appeared, and by others that one of the old prophets had risen again. And Herod said, John, I have beheaded. But who is this of whom I hear such things? And sought, and so he sought to see him. This Herod is Herod Antipas, who was the Tetrarch or the fourth ruler over the area called Galilee. It is this Herod that had John the Baptist beheaded. And now, because of the things that he's hearing, he's wondering about who Jesus was. His guilty conscience made him wonder if this was John the Baptist risen from the dead. It would appear that Herod made several attempts to see Jesus in person, most likely sending invitations requesting that Jesus visit him, which it would appear that Jesus ignored. And fourth, and importantly in our walk as disciples, we need to learn to take time to recharge your spiritual batteries. Verse number 10 says that the disciples return and they give a report to Jesus. And the apostles, when they had returned, told him all that he had done. And then he took them and went aside privately into a deserted place belonging to the city called Bethsaida. We do not know how long this Galilean campaign went on. It would seem that it would last several weeks. The disciples were tremendously encouraged by the results they had seen, and they came back very eager to report to Jesus. Mark tells us in his account, you might want to turn there, Mark chapter 6, verse, verses number 30 through 32. Mark tells us that Jesus took the disciples apart for a little while, it says, Then the apostles gathered to Jesus and told him all things, both what they had done and what they had taught. And he said unto them, Come aside by yourselves to a deserted place and rest a while. For there were many coming and going, and they did not even have time to eat. And so they departed into a de- deserted place in a boat by themselves. The text reveals four clear instructions. Come aside by yourselves to a deserted place and rest a while. I don't want you to miss what's being conveyed here. The Greek carries the meaning of not just come aside by yourselves, but come aside for yourselves. When Jesus tells his disciples to come aside and rest, we <clears throat> it simply means to come and give oneself rest. Being a true disciple of the Lord can be both taxing and troubling. And we need to do as the apostles did. That is, we need to tell Jesus. We need to go apart to a quiet place and be with him. And let him speak to us. Develop a devotional life is not just something else that we have to do. It is rather a time of rest and refreshing. A time to tell Jesus And let him direct our paths. Part of our purpose in being in this place today is to be quiet, to rest, to be refreshed, be renewed by the presence of Jesus. But sometimes we're in such a hurry about worship. We want to get out of here and go on to other things that we have planned for the day. We have plans and we're anxious about time. We have allotted one hour for worship, and it better not go any longer. Part of the problem is that we live in a day and age when everything is supposed to be done quickly and efficiently. We eat fast food served at a drive through window and head out to drive in the fast lane. And so when we come to church, we want our worship pre-planned, pre-packaged, and promptly delivered so that we can get on to the other and better things that we have planned. Part of our problem is that we have brought our way of life right in to this special place. This morning, I want us to slow down just for a moment to see four ways that we can find refreshment. First of all, refreshment is going to come when we recognize the signs. Some factors or signs that we should determine Look at in determining whether or not we need physical and spiritual refreshment are these unending stress, serving more and enjoying it less, sacrificing family and spiritual development are signs that we should watch. Refreshment comes secondly from restraint. God hasn't asked you to do everything. Philippians chapter 4 verse 13 says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Unfortunately, as modern Christians in America, we have rephrased that verse to say I can do everything through Christ who strengthening me. If you have more than you can possibly do, then you're trying to do more than God has called you to do. The truth is that God will give you the strength to do everything he has called you to do. But God has not called you to do everything. We need to accept our human needs and limitations. So you need to stop and listen to the voice of your Heavenly Father rather than the expectations of the people around you. We as Christians seem to have forgotten what Paul exclaimed in Philippians 3.13, this one thing I do. We need to refocus on exactly what it is that God has called us to do. And then refreshment comes from rest. Some of you mothers with young children can appreciate this story. I read about a couple who, after, after having their fifth child, received a playpen from some of their friends. Several weeks later, the friends who sent it received a thank you note which read, The playpen is wonderful. It's just what we needed. I sit in it every afternoon and read and the kids can't even get close to me. Mm -mm. There are different kinds of rest that we need in this life. One, there is rest you get from sleep. We need a proper amount of sleep each day. I think it would do us good and we would receive more from our worship experience if we looked at our Sundays like the Jews looked at their Sabbath, that it began on Sunday, Saturday evening and rather than coming into their church on Sunday morning exhausted. One recent survey suggests that almost 70% of all Americans do not get enough sleep each night. Thus, it is not amazing that many people will feel sleepy or groggy during the week because of their lack of sleep. There is also rest in worship. The Ten Commandments set forth the Sabbath Principle. One day of each week was to be devoted to rest, Bible study, and worship. We ignore that principle to our peril. One of the things we can do for our spiritual well-being is to make church a priority in our lives. Then there is a rest you get from prayer. Since only one day out of each week is set aside for God... We should also set aside some time each day for God. If the Lord Jesus himself felt the need to set aside a daily time of prayer, how much more so should we? From our text, we have learned that Jesus sent the disciples out to proclaim the gospel. This, first and foremost, though, was an exercise in training them to trust him. He commanded the disciples to set out in obedience to his instructions without the means to do so, without provision of food and housing and clothing. They were to proclaim the good news of the kingdom and as they did so, he would provide their needs through those that were reached with the gospel. But let's play the what if game. But what if his plan didn't work? What if they did not have the power he promised. What if the gospel didn't work? What if the Lord's promises were not true? Then they were in a world of hurt. Here's your takeaway. The disciples needed to learn to trust him when he was not present. Jesus could have gone with the disciples, but he purposely stayed behind. He sent them into a situation In which their needs could only be obtained through faith. And sometimes He does that to you as well. They needed to learn that He is able to look after them whether He was present or not. Jesus still sends us into situations where we have to learn to trust Him. Do you trust Him today? I mean, really, do you trust Him? Even if the resources are not present for what He has called you to do, do you trust Him? It's easy to talk about walking by faith, but doing it is an entirely different matter. Paul wrote these words to his son in the faith, Timothy, and they've always been very special to me. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 12, he says, I know whom I have believed, and I am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed to him, Until that day, what I've committed unto him is my soul, and that day is the day of my death or the day of his coming. How about you? Have you trusted him? Let's pray. Father, I don't pretend to know the condition of every heart in this place. It may be that there's someone here, Lord, that needs to put their trust and faith in you, that their soul also may be safe. Help them, Lord, to realize that they are a sinner, like all those people around them in this auditorium today, that they cannot save themselves. They need a Savior. And that you have provided that Savior, and that your Son... Took their sins to the cross, and there he paid for those sins. Salvation is a free gift offered to all those who will accept it, but they must accept it. Would you help them today? For all of us, Lord, help us to look at this passage and to consider these words about how we should live as true disciples of Jesus Christ, true followers of Jesus, not just in name only but in the way we live our lives Monday through Saturday before we come into this place. Help us, Lord. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.